This is Talking Points, Ken's politics podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of Talking Points, Kent's politics podcast. Uh, you're with me, Oliver Kemp, and our political editor, Paul Francis. How are you doing, Paul? Good, thanks. So, uh, it's a week of um, interesting developments throughout Kent. We had uh, a racing gambling advert, Lib Dem scuffles, and a cat standing in Medway. I think it's safe to say it's been a very interesting week in politics. Um, we, of course, now know where who each candidate will be in every area of the county standing for the general election on the 12th of December. We'll be talking about some of them in today's episode, but if you want a full rundown of who you can vote for on December 12th, you can find everything you need to know at kentonline.co.uk. And now our bosses will be happy because we've plugged the website. <laughs> it's always good to keep the bosses happy. Exactly. <laughs> so, Paul, um, give us a little bit of run of rundown on what you've thought about the last, the last week in politics in Kent. Well, it's all, it's all been about Canterbury, really since the election was called and uh, a kind of bewildering series of events in fact that I've never really experienced in any election campaign involving candidates standing, candidates not standing, candidates apparently disappeared over mountain ranges (laughs) unable to confirm whether they're standing or not so Canterbury has definitely been where it's all at in the first full week of the campaign. Mm. Well I mean I mean Paul on politics, your your show on Kane TV ended up being sort of the centre of it. We talked about it last week. You had Tim Walker on, who was standing for the Lib Dems. We had yes. Rosie Duffield on, and obviously there was a bit of a discussion there on why hasn't there been a pact made in this area, bearing in mind Rosie won, but it was very marginal last time. It was a historic win for Labour in Canterbury. Um, and Tim Walker sort of discussing, no, we're still going to stand because we're the only party that, that is, the, is, the, is the beat Brexit party. Um, and... Now we we saw him drop off and decide to stand up. Yes, and we we shoulder some of the blame for this, I think, or shoulder some <laughs> of the responsibility, because just a bit of background um, to what happened. We had, as you say, the Rosie and uh, Tim on, on the show, and after the show, uh, Tim was going back to Canterbury, and Rosie, who'd arrived by train from London, was going to get a train. So Tim very chivalrously said, "Oh well, um, I tell you what, why don't you get a lift with us?" So. Rosie accepted and they ended up having a longer than expected com- conversation in the car because there was some traffic jam along the M2 and it was at that point that uh, Tim decided he didn't really have the stomach for the fight so having stood for all of about a week he then decided to throw in the towel uh, and that led to a certain sense of panic in the Lib Dems quarters uh, and they were kind of hurriedly parachuting in a new candidate uh, from Dorking, uh, a woman called Claire Malcolmson. Yes. Um, and then I guess after that, it looked as if it was, it was it'd be interesting to see what, what Claire had to say and how, how she would stand in, in a different way to Tim Walker. And then obviously we had another development, which we covered on Kent Online, which was a rather racy gambling advert that was uh, that was discovered from her, her past life as an actor. Yes, Claire is an actress by profession and uh, one of her previous jobs was to uh, have a gig, as it were, as uh, uh, in this advert for a gambling company, which, uh, as you say, that, that word racy, <laughs> often used by tabloids but by nobody else, uh, came to the fore uh, and uh, it showed her in uh, some you know, interesting uh, 
dresses. Yeah, costumes. I think it'd be safe to say it was S and M gear and a whip. Yes, let's let's put. There's no bones about it. That's absolutely right. <laughs> We're going to go with exactly yeah, what it right, was. There's no. Let's not dance around the around the uh, the the description. No, no. Uh, so this story appeared and you know got a bit of few comments, but uh, I think the the problem that the Lib Dems have, for, to be serious for a moment, in Canterbury is that they've been seen to be a bit all over the place and there's been lots of internal recriminations within the association about the fact that uh, about the fact that they've had to find a replacement and the National Party apparently insisted that there should be a candidate whereas there was a lot of feeling that the Lib Dems perhaps ought to stand aside to give Rosie Duffield uh, the best chances of uh, retaining the seat. So it's all got a bit messy for the Liberal Democrats, but it's also got a bit messy messy for the Brexit Party because sure. uh, they too have ha- had some uh, difficulties in Canterbury. Uh, their candidate, Owen Prue, was amongst the candidates that uh, was uh, nominated, well, he wasn't nominated, but was picked uh, by the party and was going to be the only constituency in Kent where there was going to be a uh, Brexit Party candidate. Now, come Friday, or Thursday, I beg your pardon, when the nominations were published, we saw that uh, his name wasn't on the list of candidates for Canterbury. Uh, and it was, we, we, we've only just been able to establish a little bit about what, uh, what happened there. He decided, he says he decided not to stand, uh, sent a long uh, open letter explaining his reasons, although not in a terribly coherent fashion. But basically he was saying... Uh, he decided to stand aside because he was alarmed at the prospect of Jeremy Corbyn becoming leader and he wanted people to back uh, the Conservative candidates, Anna Firth. That's, that's put it very simply. His letter has lots of literary allusions and uh, it's slightly more cryptic than that. But uh, he tweeted out that uh, the reason he stood aside was because he wanted uh, a Conservative government and felt that Jeremy Corbyn wasn't the right person to lead the country. Mm. So it's kind of in out, do the hokey cokey, uh, all in Canterbury. Yeah, it's becoming, uh, and obviously in the last in the last general election, it ended up being one of the national stories that kind of put the general election into Kent on a national scale, and it could potentially do the same thing again. It certainly ended up being a lot of our focus in the last week because of so much that's going on. Um, I mean. Just slightly going back to you know not wanting to take take it down a level, but going back to the Claire Malcolmson video. Yes, uh, let's let's bring it down. Let's yeah. bring it down. Why not? <laughs> um, Monday morning. Uh, th- I mean, there, there's been discussion on whether this might damage her credibility, and she even said when she was asked about it, "This could damage my credibility." Yeah. I mean, do we think that's what's going to happen? Well, I think you know uh, how prurient are we going to be over this sort of thing? You know, it was a job. Uh, she has to make a living if she's not getting acting roles you know lots of actors do this kind of stuff uh nothing unlawful or illegal was taking place so you know maybe it's a little bit of a fuss about nothing but uh, you know and also let's let's be honest about it, it might be the sort of thing that might win her a few votes yeah i mean if you're looking at the, the liberal crowd um who and and let's be honest it's perfectly fine to to make a living it's not she's not done anything illegal here this was just right. a just was just a job yeah. um there, and, there are worse things that candidates have done <laughs> exactly far worse things so i think um it'll be interesting to see if that does affect it but then i suppose when it comes to um who wins votes on the night it's it's going to be very difficult to come to any conclusion as to whether that's affected her campaign yeah, or not anyway really. i think i think if there are 
if there's going to be any impact on the Liberal Democrats, it, it is the fact that they've had to parachute somebody in at late notice who doesn't know the area, is not embedded in Kent, has no real Kent connections at all. And, you know, for the Liberal Democrats, that's a big, you know, big thing for them is they, uh, as it's sometimes said, they're a bottom-up rather than a top-down party. Uh, but they've had to, uh, you know, deal with an unexpected turn of events and have probably ended up with a candidate who is going to do far less well than um, Tim Walker was going to do. But, you know... Let, Let's bit of balance. Tim Walker was also not from Kent and was mm. an outsider. Well, this is the thing about your your local MPs. You presumably want them to to understand the area, know the area, so they can best represent you and and help improve the local area, not yeah. just being parachuted in. And, mo- and most parties uh, have done that in Kent. They have got local candidates. It's quite unusual to have um, you know, candidates installed at that late stage. You know like 24 hours before the nomination papers were. Yeah, that's particularly... So, you know, the local association members, activists and, you know, supporters within the association uh, were apparently very unhappy, or a lot of them were very unhappy about it. And, um, again, just a bit of background. just so happened that the constituency party was supposed to be having its annual general meeting last Thursday, timing-wise, and had suggested that it be cancelled because they were going to be busy with lots of other things. I can't think what that was a reference to. <laughs> but uh, I, I've, I gather from uh, my contacts that uh, that went down like a proverbial lead balloon because they realised that activists and you know association members would want to give vent to their feelings about the whole uh, sorry episode. Talking Points, Ken's Politics Podcast. So a report came out today, it's been reported on a number of different um areas of the press about um, how Muslim voters could swing certain marginal seats in the country. And one of them was Canterbury. Um, I mean, it seems like Rosie Duffield's been pretty good with the Muslim community. She's been turning up to a lot of events. And uh, the chair of, of, of the Muslim mosque in Canterbury told me that, that her previous, the previous person who was MP, Julian Brazier, never turned up to any events, therefore felt perhaps there would be some more votes on the cards this time around for Rosie Duffield from the Muslim community in Canterbury. I mean, how, uh, how important do you think some of these different communities might be to, to marginal seats like that? Well, in Canterbury, you know, they could make the difference. You know, we all know there's going to be a... It's, it's going to be a fight for every vote and you know last time around uh, the student vote was credited with um, helping Rosie Duffield win uh, it's difficult to assess the kind of the, the, the potential impact of that other than to say that you know every vote is going to count in a way in Canterbury that doesn't necessarily apply in other constituencies it's the student vote. I mean, this was a, this was a conversation last time, wasn't it? It was the idea that the only way that that Rosie won was because there's a, such a strong student population. Canterbury have three universities there, um, and the conversation swip, swapped a little bit this time round because because of the time of year that the election's taking place. We have December the twelfth, which is traditionally right at the right at the end of term for universities. Major hangovers all around. Major hangovers, yeah. Just final final part of the term. Yeah. Getting excited for Christmas. Um, and there's the idea that where where are the students going to be at that time? Are they going to have gone home? And they are, are they going to have registered in the right place to vote? And will that actually affect the turnout for young voters? Yeah, I, I mean, I think you touched on the, the the issue there is that timing wise uh, is possibly not uh, going to have the same significance as it did last time around. You know, tying with the fact that uh, you know it's uh, dark days, shorter daylight hours, uh, and you know students nursing. You know, 
potential hangovers might be even less inclined to venture out. Uh, and as you say, you might actually have gone home by that stage. You know, uh, university terms end on specific days and it's not uncommon for students to um, disappear one or two days before that. So I don't know is the answer. To yeah, to so it's a good conclusion. I mean, who who does know? You yeah. know, that's always our conclusion. But I mean, it's going to be interesting to see. This is Talking Points, Kent's politics podcast. So, Paul, Tunbridge Wells is another area that I think we wanted to briefly touch on yes. uh, as a place of focus for the election Yes, on paper, it looks like a very safe seat uh, for the Conservatives. And the the incumbent MP, Greg Clark, uh, is uh, standing. And what's interesting about this seat is that the Liberal Democrats, who came third in 2017, regard it as, uh, in jargon, as a seat in play. Oh, that's uh, very sporty, yes, that. Yes, which, which means, effectively, they think they've got an outside chance of causing an upset in the kind of same way... Uh, that they did in Canterbury in 2017. Now I was uh, venturing out, or was planning to venture out to, to the uh, to the constituency on Saturday to speak to a couple of people, including the Lib Dem candidates and the Labour candidate. But sadly, got thwarted by poor train connections, so wasn't able to do my kind of research visits and chat to the candidates. I think uh, you know my my view is that uh, the Lib Dems are you know. Nothing wrong with a bit of optimism uh, and positivism, but uh, I think it would it would be a pretty hard task to uh, overturn the Conservative majority there. I mean, there's undoubtedly the demographics of Tunbridge Wells have changed in in some ways, which you know favour perhaps uh, the, the Lib Dems and and Labour, but not to the extent that I would necessarily see them as springing a surprise victory i mean there's no student vote there for starters but you know uh they're working it hard the liberal democrat candidate a guy called ben uh uh, uh who is uh from a french background um he's uh he's actually a teacher but he's taken a sabbatical to uh, fight the campaign uh but i have to say uh i spoke to the labor candidate over the phone uh, and they feel that uh, they're, they're the main contenders and they've written a cheeky letter to the Lib Dems asking them to stand aside to allow them the, the best More pacts. Person, more pacts, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think the other thing that's worth mentioning about Tunbridge Wells, it is one of these seats where the Lib Dems have forged a kind of non-aggression pact with the Greens and the Greens are not standing. don't think that's going to make a massive difference, though. Mm. Um, and actually, aside from Tunbridge Wells and Canterbury... Um, we had a little bit of a look today at the at the number of candidates that are standing in the kind of male to female ratio of of, of council of, of potential candidates. Um, were there much interesting there that tell us that much about the, the makeup of, of Kent's uh, election? I think you know, I was you know I was going through my head before I actually got down to writing it all in a spreadsheet, uh, and I I thought the gender gap might be narrower than it, than it was, and actually when it totaled up. Um, there were still, you know, a majority of male candidates, 54, I think, to 32 female candidates. Um, but, you know, interesting to see that the Conservatives, if they win um, Kent seats, will return, you know, a reasonable number of uh, female, female, excuse me, 
female MPs. That's that hobnob there. That is that hobnob. On you there, Paul. Um, <laughs> You'll yeah. have to fill in while I have it. <laughs> yeah, and, and um, of course the national conversation and a lot of what we talked about last night is the number of uh, female MPs that have decided to stand down on uh, on on fear of kind of abuse. And yeah, like I was, that. this is the other side of the coin, I guess. You know, so Seven Oaks. You know, if the Conservatives win Seven Oaks, which is you know probably going to happen, they will have a female MP. Uh, obviously, Canterbury with Rosie, uh, and you know so there are some existing Conservative MPs who uh, stand every chance of getting re-elected. Talking points, Ken's politics podcast. So uh, last week I said that. Potentially, we could be talking about manifestos today, Paul. Yeah, you, but... you brought forward the publication date single-handedly <laughs> by saying that the manifestos would be published. That's how many people are listening to talking. <laughs> this is the power points. of the podcast. <laughs> they are they're already very powerful, very powerful things. Um, so yeah, we haven't had any manifestos yet. Um, we're still waiting on them. Any hints yet as to what to what well, the conversation is going to be I, around? If I was a you know, if I was a party, I'd probably have a kind of a four side of uh, a manifesto. I mean, the parties do love. You know, I think I mentioned this last week. They like to s- set out in detail. Uh, you know what their commitments are going to be, and it will be another row about uh, costings of expenditure. So you'll see the Conservatives attack Labour over its uncosted uh, expenditure plans, uh, and the Labour doing the same to the Conservatives. And, and I think you know, if you went around and asked people what they remember from the manifestos in 2017, you'd draw a, a blank, basically. I mean, even I can't remember what was in the manifestos of 2017. And you're the political editor, and so I am help us all, you know. Yes. So um, yeah, manifestos um, will give um, another kind of interesting area. But I, the the other interesting thing in terms of the campaign is the first potential leaders debate on. Tuesday, I think, although that's being issued the caveat here if you're listening to this after Tuesday. Mm, mm. Maybe it might not have taken place because the Lib Dems are going to court to, to get it stopped, saying it's not not fair to exclude them from the leaders' debate. It seems like every time we try and organise a timeline for things to talk about on this podcast, they get completely moved that's, or changed that's or politics. swapped. That's politics, what it's election campaigns, yeah. So, I, I mean, I, I'm interested to see. I'm a big fan of these leaders' debates. I know it's kind of... Uh, they get uh, uh, schooled in delivering the kind of relevant sound bites that uh, they think are going to hit the right targets. But, you know, they always have the potential for a, a kind of slip up somewhere along the line or, you know, a misplaced phrase. Uh, do we think that's a, do, we, do we think that's fair? I mean, I think a lot of voters are going to ra- would be would rather watch an hour long debate than go through every single manifesto for the parties. Yeah, I would agree. Definitely. Um, I mean, but at the same time, is it fair that if they slip up on something they say that they get completely reprimanded by the yeah. press the next day? I mean, I think, you know, people who don't like the kind of TV debate side of it say it's, it's, it's we're becoming a bit more like America. Like you performative. Know, yeah, mm. where, you know, they, they kind of define the kind of the, the campaign uh, and there's so much attention brought to them. And we, we haven't got that tradition. It's quite a new thing relatively in t- in terms of UK politics. But I, I think more people are likely to tune in to that than to read manifestos. Uh, you know, whether it kind of, uh, sw- whether it affects the overall results ultimately, I don't know, because it's, a lot of the debate is about not making mistakes, not making the wrong uh, sound bites and saying something off the cuff which gets misinterpreted. Um, so in a sense, you know, 
the, when when they first started, there was there was kind of slightly more kind of open in terms of discussion and parties. Uh, perhaps didn't kind of rehearse quite as much as they do now. So there's a lot of preparation going on behind the scenes with you know role playing for kind of uh, conservatives to ask you know Boris difficult questions in the same Labour doing. So I think it is going to be an interesting debate, provided it takes place. Mm. I guess to be confirmed on that, we may be talking about it next week, but we might not be. Yes. Um, I did mention a cat earlier, cat standing. We haven't really talked about that. I don't know how much I'm going to actually mention it, but basically there's a cat standing in Gillingham and Rainham. Yes. Uh, so there's that. There is a cat which you know has generated lots of uh, comments. It's not really a cat, we should say. Uh, well... But, well, well no. you, I tell you what. We'll, should we give, leave our readers, our <laughs> listeners, our listeners in suspense to say the only way, the way you're going to find out about the cat is go to Kent Online to see the li- the full list of candidates. That's another there. plug. That's two plugs in one I podcast. Know. What are we doing? It's good. It's good. It's very good. Um, I mean, there's a couple of things to end on. A couple of light-hearted things. Um, I was gonna we're gonna do a, a little thing where we talk about the things we don't like about campaigns, especially during the general election. Yeah, you had one particularly that you got frustrated yeah, by. Yeah, I've got this thing about the, uh, the the parties going out into constituencies, doing their canvassing and door knocking, and all saying they've had such a fantastic response from voters. It's been brilliant. Voters have told us they don't want Boris. Voters have told us they don't want Jeremy. Uh, and it's usually accompanied by a uh, picture of uh, happy canvases brandishing placards. I just don't think it adds terribly much to the debate. <laughs> Do, would you prefer them to say, really bad reception today, it was raining and actually everyone slammed yeah, the door in my face? Well, some some have done that in the past. But I just I think it's one of these things which I, uh, I'm not a fan of in the same way as I'm not a fan of um, kind of uh, politicians visiting hospitals or schools. Uh, in order to kind of promote their uh, their campaigns, I just think you know it's kind of political graffiti, which uh, <laughs> doesn't really do any anyone much, uh, doesn't help anyone really in terms of deciding whether to uh, you know vote one way or the other. But it just it clogs up my timeline. You know, I'm Twitter. sure it probably does, as, as following all of the uh, candidates as you yeah. probably are. So yes, no, that's my my one. This is my. Week two's uh, dislike of the week. There <laughs> we go. The another, uh, and actually, onto one more very popular segment. I say very popular. This is only the second time we've ever done it, but I'm sure everyone is itching to hear what your jargon of the week is. Well, Paul. it's yes, yeah, not quite jargon. It's uh, ruined it already. Second yeah, week. Yeah, <laughs> extending the definition of what jargon is, but it's this phrase that's been used by Boris Johnson and other Conservatives about having an oven-ready chicken. Go on. Uh, I'm hungry. This is a, uh, a a metaphor for the uh, for the Brexit deal, which they claim uh, will deliver uh, you know the UK's withdrawal from the EU without any adverse con- consequences. Boris Johnson came up with it first. He talked about an oven-ready chicken, the deal being like an oven-ready chicken that you just put in the microwave. We're now what some culinary uh, analysts have said that uh, you shouldn't put a microwave at all. <laughs> dish into the oven and they've not heard of uh, chickens being put in you'd have to have the microwave on for an awful long time yeah, on, a, on an oven setting on presumably a, yes. I mean I don't imagine Boris Johnson has ever cooked an oven well, ready chicken well we, we had that uh, this is another uh, th- thing politicians are trying out now is doing these video uh, memes and little kind of inserts uh, and uh, Boris Johnson did one this week or rather last week Boris Johnson did one last week where he was seen answering all sorts of kind of uh, questions to you know make help him uh, seem more human like the Vogue interview wasn't it yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, and which he was walking down a corridor and 
was asked what his favourite band was and he said it was The Clash and The Rolling Stones then he said it was mainly The Rolling Stones and then we saw him trying to make a cup of tea in the uh, cons- conservative HQ uh, kitchen and it you know if you're a fan of tea it looked like a particularly bad cup of tea I, <laughs> I didn't get any sense that he knew how to make a cup of tea properly other than he'd seen someone pour some water into a cup and add some milk you think you'd prep that, wouldn't you, if you're going to go and do one of these videos where yeah. it's off the cuff and all that. You'd expect, make sure the PM knows how to make a tea, yes. at the very least. Although, you know, I, we would probably um, hate it if they stopped doing these things because, you know, it's good entertainment value to us. It gives us a lot to talk about yeah, yeah. and laugh and, at. And, in a, you know, who can blame them for trying? I just don't think this one was a particularly successful one. And uh, uh, along with, uh, I think the kind of metaphor of Northern Ready Chicken is... is is okay, you know. Is, I guess. I guess. Why not an oven-ready lasagna or something? Like yeah, that? yeah. Why, oh, why, why be, go with be, uh, be Italian, wouldn't it? So I sp- yeah. maybe that's what he's going. He's yeah. going for poultry because he's saying it's, it's a UK thing, like roast dinner on a Sunday. You know, maybe he's going to change it to an oven-ready turkey by the time. Yeah, maybe. I think we're going far and far away from the metaphor. When we we do are, that. yes. Uh, <laughs> but yes, less twit, less fewer tweets about people are saying they've had a fantastic reception. And uh, fewer uh, culinary illusions, I think. Uh, what, some advice. What, what the campaign needs. Some good good advice there from Paul Francis. Uh, thank you so much for listening to our second episode of Talking Points. We'll be back next week with uh, all the developments nationally and locally. Um, my name's Oliver. This is Paul. Thanks very much for listening, everyone. We'll see you. Well, we won't see you. We'll be with you next week. Yeah, if we see you. Well, maybe we'll do a video cast next week then. Yeah, we could. <laughs> oh no, that would definitely lose us uh, listeners. <laughs> Goodbye. Talking Points, Kent's politics podcast. 